I, I tell you what, I can remember the day that I got married. How many of you guys can remember the day that you got married? Okay. Engaged couples, put your hand down. What are you doing? That day's coming. But I remember that day. We had secured the church that I, w- I grew up in, and we paid a very small amount, like 25 bucks to rent the sanctuary for the reception. Now, our the, for, for the for the ceremony, the reception was probably, I don't know, a couple miles away. But the AC chose not to work that day. Now, the significance of this is because we didn't get married in the winter months. We got married on June 9th. In Delaware, where I'm from and where we got married, it hit record temperatures. Now, record temperatures up there means like 94 degrees, okay? <laughs> record temperatures here, okay. But so my wife, she's, there, there's, there's no AC in this place. My, my bro, one of my brothers uh, later said that his coat stuck to the pew. <laughs> I was afraid to ask the kind of damage that that incurred. But my wife, she's standing like this. She's got sweat dripping down her face, and she says, Michael, I'm so glad that I wore, what type of makeup is that? Uh, Water-resistant, help me out, ladies. Uh, Water, yeah, that. Water-resistant makeup something. And all of the the bridesmaids, and there were a ton of them, did the same, wise planning. Uh, But the problem didn't stop there. We had a relatively short uh, ceremony planned uh, because we had secured the reception hall for only a certain number of hours and things needed to move like chop chop. And the pastor, which is, we called him Uncle Herb, he wa- we just loved this guy, one of my, my dad's closest friend. Um, and we went to his church and so he married us and uh, he felt led to read the first three chapters of Genesis and then preach for 45 minutes. And so the service was going on, and then, of course, you got pictures, right? And so they're snapping all of these pictures, and, and you know, what, word of advice to those of you who are getting married, just understand the larger your wedding party, okay, the longer it's going to take to pick, take pictures. So we get to the reception, and it's late, and people are starting to fall out onto the floor, I think, from just lack of food and sustenance. And so finally we arrive and, and we're being introduced and it's like a whirlwind and, you know, there's the, the dance, the daddy-daughter dance and my wife danced with her dad, I danced with my mom, I love that, different dances and then we sit down and we're eating and then Meredith and I are getting up and we're greeting and before we know it, you know, we're cutting the cake and people are throwing rice and we're heading out the door and we, we arrive at our hotel, we sit down on the bed and we look at each other and just say, what happened? It was like problem after problem and hurry this and do that. And before you know, whoa, uh, I think we just got married. (laughs) And I want to ask you, how many of you woke up this morning and you were all set for all types of problems today? How many of you have ever sat down and you've planned maybe like a wedding, but you've planned something and you planned all the details and then problems happened and you just walk away? Wouldn't life be nice? If we never encountered problems, how many of you would say, wouldn't life be nice if we never encountered problems? If my spouse would just get it together, right? If my children would just, you fill in the blank. If my boss, oh my goodness, I pray for him or her. But life would be so nice if there were no problems. And yet, I don't care how much you plan, you will encounter problems. 
managers. You know, I was talking with Mike the other day. He was a manager over at a restaurant. He says, you know, when you, when you plan something and you pull off the plan, it's like, ah, oh, it's so wonderful to see a plan come through. And that's, what, that's a manager's perspective. And I think all of us share in that how nice it is when we go through a day and what we planned actually happens the way we planned it. No need for contingency plans, okay? But here's the truth, church. You encounter problems every single day. Life does not go the way you planned it or the way you necessarily wanted it to. And so we're going to be going through this book called First Peter. They call it First Peter because it's the first letter that Peter wrote. Guess what they call the next one he wrote, you got it, Second Peter. And so, but we're not going to be studying Second Peter. We've already done that a couple of years ago as a church. We're going to be looking at First Peter. And I'm just going to kind of lay some groundwork for us. But the reality, church, is that when we come to Christ, and we're talking about our resurrection day and how God is changing that, we're going to get into some of that today, but we start having some preconceived ideas as far as what this Christian life is going to look like. And if we're not careful, we can think, well, I, I'm trusting Jesus now, and he's going to take all my problems away. How many of you have ever experienced that before? What, no hands? Yeah, that is, that's just, life happens and problems happen even when we come to Christ. On the other hand, if we're not careful as followers of Christ, we can allow these problems to begin to overwhelm us and sour our attitude and be able to change our perspective of who God is because we're listening to the lies of the enemy who says, you know what, God doesn't really love you. He's really rejecting you. Look at all this punishment in your life. Is there no end? And, and it feels like when we became Christians, we actually encountered more problems. Like, God, what is up with this? And we can head in those two different extremes, as if God's just going to wave this magical wand and all problems go away, or that as we go through these, we, you know, God, where are you? What, what is it that I've done today that's caused you to turn your back on me? Can we can feel this way? And church, I want to tell you that God holds neither of those views. He holds neither of those views. He actually has a plan for the problems that you did not anticipate yesterday or today or this week. He has a plan for them, and we're going to kind of look into this because there is a purpose for these problems that you're encountering, and, and I'm not going to go through and, and list all the different reasons, but God has a plan, and he is going to want you to walk through these problems in a way that truly honors him. Now, I, I've touched on this somewhat when we were going through the book of Romans, <laughs> especially, excuse me, when we hit chapter 8. Um, but we're going to go now more into depth because we have five chapters in First Peter to talk about over the next three months. I want you to turn already, I know you've turned to First Peter, but chapter 5. Chapter 5. <clears throat> Peter, I believe, understood problems as a follower of Jesus Christ, he understood, he realized God didn't wave his magical wand and poof, they were gone, but he did not become embittered by the trials in life either. By a friend, a relative, a spouse. And Peter was married, by the way. He didn't know that. 
He learned to walk through these problems as a mighty man of God. And in the first chapter, we're going to look at this next week, but he talks about going through life with inexpressible joy. I mean, how many of you would love to go through the problems of this life with inexpressible joy? Meaning, you are just so ecstatic with excitement, you can't communicate it. Would that not be awesome? And yet, this is the promise, this joy that he promises to us, even in the midst of problems. The entire book of 1 Peter is about problems. It's it's a whole lot more than that. It's also about this thing called grace. And God's grace in the midst of these problems. Now, before I read, Peter was a rather, how can I say, impetuous young man. He was the type of guy, outgoing, you know, he spoke and then he thought about what he spoke. Do you understand what I'm talking about? All right. Um, He leapt and then he looked. Peter was the type of guy, he was bold as a lion, but then sometimes he was a coward. Remember, he was the guy who put under pressure, denied Jesus three times. I don't even know. I don't know what you're talking about because he was, his life, he felt was on the line. I mean, they were trying Jesus. And on that third time when he denied Jesus, the Bible tells us, and Jesus looked at Peter, not like you idiot, but rather, Peter, stand firm. I still love you. And Peter left, and he wept. I love it in the movie Risen, where at the Sea of Galilee, I believe that's where it was, Jesus says, Peter, come walk with me. And you only see them in the distance, and you see their communication, and it's as if Peter, right there, that's the John chapter 21 reaffirmation in which Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus and Peter says, yes, Lord. And then he says, then feed my sheep. Give yourself to my kingdom. And he reaffirms, reestablishes by Peter confessing, Jesus, I love you. And then, of course, Jesus talks about his coming death I'm going to get to in a moment. So here's this impetuous young man. He is completely impacted by what he has experienced. He was there. He saw Jesus. He saw the nails driven in his, in his hands and feet. He saw the spear piercing his side. And John says, blood and water came out, which is a medical inclination that death has occurred. The heart, that, 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 the water that surrounded the heart, that that was ruptured and blood and water came out. This guy is dead. They say they didn't need to break his legs because that's what you would do to speed up because the Sabbath was the next day, speed up the death process, because now he couldn't push up to get a breath. And the way crucifixion works is you eventually become so weak after actually a couple of days hanging on a cross that you can't push up anymore, and you can't breathe when your arms are stretched out like this, and you die of suffocation. It's known as one of the cruelest ways to die. Jesus died in six hours. I love that song, The Weight of my shame he bore. Peter saw Jesus die. But Peter also saw something that was so absolutely profound, he experienced it, that he, for the rest of his life, until about 68 AD, he proclaimed this event. 
and it's called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something happened in which Jesus transformed his life, and he was willing to be crucified, yes, upside down, for that truth. I tell you what, church, that truth transformed him. He was willing to daily confess something he saw that was so true. I, I love that passage in Acts chapter 2, what is it, 23, 4, somewhere around in there, in which it says that death, it, that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. The resurrection power of God raised him from the dead, bursting with life, and Peter witnessed it. It transformed him forever. This is the Peter that we're going to be reading from. He was the one who witnessed this resurrection, actually the first guy to witness it. Jesus tended to favor some of these ladies, Mary Magdalene and others, and he appeared to them first, then Peter, and then James and the Twelve. And these people were forever changed. The ladies, the men, forever changed. So that Peter was willing to come to the end of his life, be crucified upside down, and still confessing that event that forever transformed him. This book is about persecution. It's about going through hard times. It's about going through trials and learning how, in the midst of all of that, to rely on the grace of God. Now, Nero reigned from about 54 AD to 68 AD. Peter died at the hand of Nero. Now, we don't know exactly when 1 Peter was written. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> it may have been either prior to or just after 64 AD. That's an important date because that's when Nero put Rome to fire. He burned Rome. Turned around and blamed it on the Christians and then began this massive persecution of Christians. But even Cicero, a Roman historian, understands this and very tactfully lays the blame at Nero's feet. But Nero was the one who died. Nero was a crazy lunatic. Throughout his reign of 14 years, there was constant persecution. It escalated in 64. And so Peter has been through this. He's been around the block a few times when it comes to persecution. And finally, in 68 AD or 67, around there, Nero has him put to death. If there's going to be a guy around who has been so transformed by an event called the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then be able to endure persecution, I want to learn something from him. When you go through a problem, whatever type of problem is, and you try to solve it and you can't, who do you turn to? You go to those who you might consider an expert, someone who's done this, been there, done that, and is a little bit of wisdom to impart to you, and that's Peter. So as we go and as we look at, at Peter, First Peter, I want to do this. I want to actually go, to begin, I want us to go to the end of the book. Because here is where he kind of sums it up and he gives us exactly what we're looking for, a, a theme, a, a, 
an overarching view of what this letter is even about. And you'll find it in 1 Peter 5. I'm going to start reading just a few verses with verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, say that word with me, church, grace, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered, how long, church? A little while. I'm going to hold on to that promise, right? A little while. After you've suffered a little while, this is what he says he's going to do. Will himself four things here. I want you to circle these verbs. Restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Did you get those? Now, I'm reading from the NIV, but restore, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. But I'm not done. Verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Now I'm going to share something that seems somewhat incidental. You'll see why I'm sharing in just a moment. First Peter, if you were to know Greek and you read First Peter and then read Second Peter, you would step back and say, hmm, there's a difference in the writing style of each of these. The one Peter who wrote 1 Peter, it, it's very polished Greek. And when you read through 2 Peter, it's kind of a rougher type. It's not that it's wrongly done, but there's a difference in eloquence. Now, I read something about Silas here, and it would seem that Silas, who was also an apostle, if you read through Acts and such, Silas apparently knew Greek quite well. And Silas, more than likely, was the one that he dictated to and he wrote down, but he wrote down with polished Greek. Now, I'm mentioning this to you because in 2 Peter, I would suggest to you there was no one to be able to do that for him because that's when he was in the Mamertine prison ready for execution. And he penned 2 Peter at that point shortly before his life was taken. This is not that. He's not at the end of his life. And so he has gleaned, though, quite a bit of experience and wisdom in going through his ministry with problems, planning one thing but encountering problems and then seeing the amazing grace of God come through. And he wants to impart something to us. I'm struck by this last, actually the last phrase or two in verse 12. And he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand in. Now this word true means genuine, real, not imagined, not false, not misunderstood. But this that I'm talking to you about, this is the true grace of God. What's the significance of this? We need to understand 
what grace is. Most of us, we have this understanding that grace means when I come to Christ for the first time and I'm convicted of my sins, I ask him to forgive me. And grace means I don't have to work to earn eternal life, but I am forgiven of my sins and he imparts as a free gift to me eternal life. Now, that is grace, but that is only a part of what grace is about. And if, we're, if that's the only understanding we have of grace, we're going to misunderstand this entire first book because it is God's grace that undergirds us the entire time. And it's not just forgiveness for when we blow it in the trials, but grace is more than just simply forgiveness, as important as that is. It's more than forgiveness. Sometimes we can think of it as God's graciousness. Well, okay, if God is gracious to me, and it can mean this, great charis means grace or graciousness, but it's more than just God being gracious to us, God being nice to us. And we can think, you know, God, if you're really gracious, if you really want to be nice to me, well, I've got this whole list of what you can do for me. I can tell you about all of these problems, and I can tell you about how you can change my spouse, and I can tell you about how to change my boss, and this would be so gracious of you to do. And my question to you is, what if God doesn't do that? Does that mean he's not gracious? I think we're misunderstanding this word. The true grace of God is much greater than this. Grace, you know, sometimes... We can, we can tend to overemphasize grace. I would say that is possible. We can talk about what God is going to do to the point where we just put our life in neutral, where we don't fight, where we don't work hard, where we don't surrender ourselves fully to him. Kind of just kick back and say, you know what? God's got this thing. I'm just, Whatever. But God wants us to engage. Now, I'm not saying that it all rides on your shoulders because now that's an emphasis on what we do. See, what we do is faith. What God does is grace. But I don't want to sound as if it's 50-50, like half of it's grace and half of it's faith as you go through life. Because as you're going to find out, it is so much more God's grace because faith is simply me surrendering to God's purposes and allowing my attitude, which can stink at times, to be submitted to him and say, God, work through me, work in this situation. But faith is also stepping out like Peter when he stepped out of the boat during the storm and he walked on the water. When Peter, by the way, came to Tabitha, a widow who had served the poor, and now she was dead, and he was asked, so can you do something about this? Yeah, I want to ask you, what would you say in that situation? Uh, my, this wonderful lady has died. Can you do something about it? You're like, who do you think I am, God? No, but you see, Peter knew that as an agent of God, God could use him. So he goes into Tabitha's room. Her name also, by the way, was Dorcas, you might remember. And he closes the door and he prays and he seeks God. And then he stands up and with authority, he says, Tabitha, rise up. And she comes to life. Now that is faith. God obviously spoke something profound to Peter and says, dude, I want you to witness this, and I want all of them to witness this, 
the grace of God, the power of God. So grace, grace is more than just forgiveness. Grace is more than just God being gracious to me. And we need to understand there is a balance as we understand grace and faith. Though certainly faith is this. Faith is everything that God has that I do not but desperately need. Now, you've heard me share that definition with you before. Grace is everything that God has, every gift, every financial provision that I need. But see, he has this. I do not, but I desperately need it. And God loves that opportunity when your back is up against the wall like problems. And he gets this, you know, hang on, Mike. This is too big for you, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of course it is, God. Awesome. Now I get to display my grace. And Paul says this. In all of the trials that he went through, God, your grace is more than enough. It's not just enough. It's more than enough. Church, I want you to know, regardless of what problems you're going through, this true grace of God is more than enough for you. God can, he doesn't just come in and barely help you. He, he helps you in abundance, and that is his heart, but he needs to bring us to this place. We're going to talk about it next week with regard to faith, in which we cry out to him, and it refines that faith. But this is the true grace of God. Now, this true grace in which God looks for these opportunities to meet needs and show how awesome he is, how powerful he is, how loving he is, gracious, yes. And he looks for these opportunities to display his grace. And as we go through 1 Peter, we're going to see it, and it's going to apply in so many different areas. In this particular one, he's wrapping up the book, and he's saying, guys, you need to realize that the problems that you're encountering, the persecutions that you're going through, don't be surprised by them. It comes natural because you are a Christian and God is allowing these things to refine you and be, for you to be able to reflect the character of God and for your, your faith to be strengthened and for, for you as you're humbled before him, for God to come through in awesome, powerful ways that you can now have all of these testimonies that you share with your friends. This is what God did in my life. An impossible situation, but guess what? God came through. And so, for Peter, he says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the source of that problem that you're going through, it's not God because he's, he's got this multiple personality disorder and he's really loving and then turns around and man i just want him under my thumb and that's not the character of god church we live in a world that is fallen and it's broken and there are all kinds of problems like cancer and war and the heart and cause of it is man's sin it is not god's fault maybe from some of you here are, are, are embittered because of the problems that you've gone through. Well, guess what? It's not God's fault. He has allowed this for a reason. But Satan, understand Satan is the one who prowls around. And he is on the other end of that problem. 
And the world's lies are on the, on the other end, pulling at you and trying to deceive you and discourage you. And he does this, Satan does this, because he's trying to devour you. And if you're a Christian this morning, I can guarantee you this, if he cannot take you out, he will try to immobilize you. He will try to discourage you so that your life shifts into neutral. But you're the one who will do that. God doesn't do that for you. You're the one who will shift it into neutral if you allow the problem to overwhelm you. So the devil's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and we're to resist him. Now, then it shares with us those, you circled the four verbs, right? And I'm just going to walk you through those four ber- verbs rather quickly. But the first one is that God is allowing these for a little while. By the way, that little while might mean, it might mean a little bit longer than what you want. It might mean it's going to last for more than a day or an hour. It might actually last for a week or a month or a year. Or it might, it might even last your whole lifetime. Now listen to this. Some people are born with birth defects. And it is a trial every single day of their life. I've read testimonies of people in which wheelchair bound and they have become so embittered and yet someone in the same situation are so filled with joy. What made the difference? this that I'm about to share with you just made the difference. By the way, before I get to that, even though throughout your life you may be encountering a health issue or a problem that just seems to never go away, 70, 80, maybe 90, or God bless you, 100 years, compared to all of eternity, yes, that is such a little while such a little while, and how we go through these trials. Church, think of eternity. We're going to do more of that, but think of eternity when you're looking at this problem today. And in view of eternity, this is truly so small and so brief in your eternity. So yes, this is only a trial for a little while. After this little while, and I'm assuming that doesn't go to your death, but after a little while, he says he's going to restore you. Now, this word for restore is a word that means repair and bring to perfection. God is wanting to, through this trial, he's wanting to mend you. Have you ever thought of that? That as you go through this problem, God is actually wanting to pour out his grace upon you and actually mend something in you. Now, you you know that uh, in my, I I, I pastor, of course, full time, but I also have a side business and I repair bumpers. Yeah, I'm a bumper guy. And so I, you got to, you have to, if a bumper is pushed in or ripped, then I got to heat it up and press from the other side and, and kind of con- recontour it, and I've got to do things to weld that split and then sand it down and fill whatever needs to be filled because my goal is to make that damage disappear. And that is what God is trying to do in some of these hurts in your life. 
God is actually taking you through this fourfold step process to try and mend your life. And after I've done the body work and prime it and sand that, I spray the base and then I spray the clear. And my goal is when I stand back to be able to say, wow, this looks brand new. That is the kind of mend or repair that God is trying to do in your life. But it is a process. I wish I could snap my fingers and that bumper is all taken care of, but it doesn't work that way. Some people, they want to go through life and encounter a problem. They, they just sweep it under the carpet. They do whatever they can so they don't have to face it that day. Or, or they do that you know, quick type of repair. And I've seen those on bumpers. And you just step back and you say, oh, my goodness, the paint doesn't match. I can still see the wound. That is a big deal. For, you're probably thinking, really, Mike, don't go into any more detail, please. But this is the type of thing that, you know, now I've got I've to fix this. And these types of simple, quick repairs, that's the, that's the kind of thing that we want for, as Christians. We have this McDonald's mentality. Excuse me, McDonald's. I could say Burger King, too. Fast food mentality. Just take me through the drive-thru. I want this over and done with as fast as possible. You know, God, take away this problem. Let me move on. I've got a lot to do today, and I'm encountering this problem. And God is saying, I need you right now to just submit to me and allow me to step into your life situation here because there is an issue in your life that this is highlighting, and I need to mend that. You've allowed a, a real simple repair in the past, and excuse me, but it looks really bad. And you need me, the craftsman, to reshape this and bring healing to your heart. Because there's a wound there that you've brushed aside. I've tried in the past to heal it, and you've not permitted me to. Will you? share something with you. For those of you who have ever been through a breakup before, your boyfriend, girlfriend, a breakup, and you felt, you, maybe you remember if you've been through that, the pain of that. Here's something that's interesting. Let's say as a girl, the guy dumps you. Ouch. He lists a, a reason or two. You think they're unjust and unqualified, and you feel like pointing the finger at him, what about you? You know, and, and you go through this hurt and rejection. And then, very soon after that, another guy expresses interest in you, starts doting on you and wanting to hang out with you and spend time with you. And before you know it, guess what? That breakup, the pain of that breakup, Amazing healing, isn't it? Why? Because you feel what I'll call the love of another person. Now, here's where I'm going with this. You've encountered problems. You feel hurt as you've gone through these. I'm not just talking about breakups now. And, and, and the wound is still there. And I'm going to tell you this. The reason why it's there is you have not embraced the love of another. And that other is God himself. And I'm going to promise you this, that if you get this to allow him to start this restoration process, the first thing you need to do is embrace this love of another, this love of a God who stepped into history and bore the very pains that we do. He's God, church. He didn't need to do that. 
But he is not the type of God that will sit idle in an ivory tower, metaphorically, and, and just watch as the pain of the world unfolds. He stepped into that pain, into your pain, and the intensity of the pain that you've experienced in your life, he has experienced far more than that. Why? Because of this. He loves you. And, and I'm going to encourage you that when you are captivated by that truth, by that love, and by the way, truth is not just something that you get to think about and say, wow, isn't that cool? You know, us, guys, us people who like to think and are pensive, you know, we're okay with just thinking about truth, but God is not. He doesn't want you to just know about this truth. He wants it to change you. He wants you to experience it. It's enough to know that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Yeah, we get that every Easter, right? But he wants you to experience that because he wants it to change you. God wants you to experience truth and, not, and for that truth to change you. And so he wants you to experience this love that he has for you because that is what is going to bring about the proper mending and healing that you need. The second thing that he says here is not only does he um, will himself restore you, but he will make you strong. Now, I'm not sure why the NIV does this, but the, it switches the two words. It's actually firm, then strong, and then steadfast. So, so that you know that, I'm going to say to you that this next one is, means to establish or make you firm or confirm, it's to set you fast. Now, perhaps the best way to explain this is like yesterday, uh, Jim volunteered a couple of hours of his time unexpectedly for his plan, so this may have been a problem, a hiccup in his life, but he was willing to give me a couple of hours because I said, Jim, it's going to take me like eight hours, six to eight hours to rake these leaves, and, and if you can give any time, that would be great. And he said, Dad, I can... I can give you two hours. He just got back from nine hours working at Publix, and so he says, Dad, I can help you out raking those. I think he ended up work, helping me for more than two hours. Regardless, um, we use gloves. Now, the reason why we use gloves is because we are raking, and there's friction in the hands, and if you're not careful within two hours, you're going to get blisters. So we wore gloves. But have you ever seen a person's hands, and they do a lot of work with their hands? They're not wimps. They don't use those gloves, all right? They use their bare hands because their hands are calloused and the skin is tough. And that's what this word is getting at here. It's not that the heart becomes callous, okay? But as we're going through these issues, yeah, the first time we went through a problem like this, man, did we get blisters, metaphorically speaking. Uh, and it was hard and it was painful and hurting. And now 10 years later, wow, I'm going through the same thing. This is like, this is easy. This is not a big deal. I just surrender to God. And yes, I got to wait. I've got to be patient. But I see how he comes through and he makes it right. This is what God does. God doesn't, he doesn't kick me to the curb or leave me out to hang and dry. But God comes through when I trust him. And he's building those calluses. And, he's, and then it says that he is, the third thing here is that he is making you strong. He is strengthening you. And, you know, the more that you do handwork, like raking of the leaves, there's a lot of hand muscle and, and uh, wrist. And, and I can feel my grip today because I have weakness in, 
in this portion of my hand, and, and I can feel that that's weak today because I worked it hard for several hours raking. And it's, it will strengthen your arms. And God is wanting you as you go through these problems and these trials to strengthen. You see, there's purpose in all of this. God wants to toughen you, not to harden you. There's a big difference here. Because God uses his love to strengthen you and captivate you and produce a resolve in your heart. So when you go through these problems with faith, you say, I'm going to keep pursuing God because I know he's going to come up. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know he will do it. Time and time again at the end of the month when I'm wondering, okay, God, how are you going to provide financially? I'd be, well, I'd share this with you. I'd be walking the lot and it's like, man, God, this is not enough. And Mike, who used to work for me years ago, uh, he would say, but Mike, don't you remember? Uh, like for the last eight months, <laughs> don't mean to be so pointed, but God has done this and he has always come through and let's just trust him. <laughs> so God challenged me and so many times by the end of the day, I, I had to be there even longer than that day. God had overwhelmed me with a, 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 a truckload of work. And he provided. And it just took me, and Mike encouraging me, let's just believe God. He's going to come through. And as we did that with confidence and assurance, God came through in amazing ways. You see, and he's strengthening you. He's making your hand, your grip strong so that you keep holding on. He wants to strengthen you. See, there's purpose here. And then lastly, lastly, and I, my goodness, I need to hurry with this. Lastly, he wants to make you steadfast. He wants you to endure and shine Jesus. You know, the road doesn't necessarily get smoother and easier, but you do learn to navigate that road easier. And I want to conclude with now turning to chapter 1, and I want us to see something here. And, and I don't have the time to, to really unwrap it as, as I'd wanted to, but I'm just going to highlight two things and focus on the second more. <clears throat> I want you to follow me now. As, as I'm going to set this up so that we can look at it more in depth next week. But it says in verse 1, Peter, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen. I want you to underline that word, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for, this is the purpose of his choosing us, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A lot there. I'm going to speak to it briefly, though. Do you want to be able, as we go through this book, do you want to be able to rise above these problems and see God manifest his grace in your life? Do you want to see that? Of course, yes, it's going to require faith, and actually in the next verse he talks about that, but I want it. I think you want it. And so Paul, excuse me, Peter starts off by saying, you know what? Even before you were born, before he created anything, he chose you. Now, I'm not going to get into the concept of election much right now. I did that when we looked at Romans. But I want you to know this. 
that if today you are a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, he has chosen you. But he has chosen you unto obedience. The reason why he chose you, because he has something for you. He has this plan, this purpose, and it's obedience in Jesus Christ. And then we come to this phrase. Look at that right there. It says, the sprinkling by his blood. What? And if we're not careful, we kind of read through those two verses, and it seems just so theological and wah, 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 really, you know, we tune it out. I want you to listen. In the Old Testament, when the high priest would sprinkle something with blood, and even himself and the other priests sprinkling them with blood, does it have to do with forgiveness? Hebrews that gets into this kind of stuff actually says yes, but it was more than that. The reason why they sprinkled something with blood, I know that sounds kind of strange, but that blood, was it, it, the priest did that because in essence, the utensils, the different things that were about to be used in the ceremony, that was the priest dedicating these things to God. In essence, at least ceremonially, making them holy for a holy purpose. You see, God chose you for this type of sprinkling. Jesus, he, he, he washed your sins away. That's the significance here, but it's more. He has set you apart for a holy purpose. A holy purpose. God has a purpose for your life, and it, it's holy. It's precious to him. He is excited about it, and he is eager for you to walk in this. And he has chosen you for this holy purpose. But for you to walk in it now, it says, look at this in verse 3. It says, in his great mercy. Now, okay, that's something that took place. This choosing took place, it says, even before the world began. Read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. In him he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He did this before creation. Now, now you come, as you're going through your life, you come to this point where you choose to believe in Jesus and you choose to surrender to him and not just believe the facts about the gospel and what you heard on this Easter morning from a pastor, but you believe in this person who died on the cross and was raised from the dead, you believe in Jesus Christ and you give him yourself. You surrender to him. And it uses this term, in his great mercy, he has made you born again. And I, I want to conclude with this. Because this purpose that he's going to be unfolding in your life, that yes, even in God's plans and purposes, there are problems, but he needs you to be on the same page with him. Because the Bible says that Mike Curtis was absolutely dead in his sin, held captive by that sin to do what Mike Curtis wanted. And Mike Curtis was driven by his will and what he wanted in life. And that needed to die. Mike, I want you to come follow my purpose, but... I need you to die. I heard someone's testimony, and they said, you know what? I finally got this Christian life thing and, and grasped it and understood it when I realized that both God and the devil had the same purpose in mind, to kill Mike Curtis. 
Yes. Okay, so the devil, he, he wants to destroy you. Got that. But you see, God needed Mike Curtis dead here. He needed me and my selfishness and my addiction to sin. And no, I wasn't addicted to alcohol or drugs, but nevertheless, I was addicted to sin as all of you were and dead in that sin. And we all needed this rescuing so that we would be on the same page with God. We needed, as Peter says, we needed to be born again. Rebirth. Whole different outlook on life. When the child comes out of the womb... Life so frightens him that he begins to cry. I've, that's how I see it. And, and, but when we are born again, everything's different, church. We now start seeing things from God's perspective. And the more we get into this book, that you know, the world has trained us so well. Hollywood, through all its media, has trained us so well to think like the world. And God says, no, this is what you need. Live by these truths. But to do that and to be on this adventure that when you go through these problems, know that there is a purpose in this, a divine holy purpose. You have to start by trusting in me and being born again. I need to change your life. Now, that change is going to is a process, but initially, Mike Curtis had to die. I need to be rescued from my sin. My old nature that controlled me needed to be put to death, and I needed to receive a new nature, a new way of seeing things, new desires. Before I came to Christ, I wanted to be really religious. I went to church faithfully. I even opened my Bible. I mean, I didn't read it, but I opened it, you know, and, and I wanted to appear religious to other people. After all, my dad was the choir director. I needed to look good, right? And so we, we, I was very religious, but I was not saved. I've been to church all my, I think I was born in the church. I went to church all my life, but I wasn't saved. But when I encountered the truth, at age 14 for me, when I encountered the truth of what it meant to be born again, and for me to trust in Jesus Christ, he changed me. And I want to just tell you that if you have never been born again, and you want what we've just been talking about, and this adventure with God's grace, it starts there. And so I'm going to conclude right now. If, if we could dim the lights, we're going to have communion right now. But just have the kids come in, if you would. But I want to ask you, what does the cross and the resurrection really mean for you? See, for me, up until I was 14, it was just something that was nice. We sang hymns. We certainly didn't have drums in our church, but we sang hymns, and we sang nicely, and we even harmonized with the hymns, and, you know, that was pretty cool. But it didn't change me. And we're about to take communion right now, and that communion is an invitation to walk with intimacy with Jesus Christ. So that Paul says, you know what, if, you're not if you've never been born again, then please don't partake of the bread and, and the, the juice. Because this is symbolic of what Jesus has done for you. And I invite you, all believers, to partake of this. And let's remember the cross of the cross. Let's remember the power of the resurrection that changed you. And by that resurrection, Peter says, you were born again. See, that power, that's what I want. Not just when I was saved, I want to live in that power every day.